I do hope you have your Bibles with you this morning, and if you do, I would like to have you open them to the book of Zephaniah once again. We are in our fourth message of Zephaniah this morning, and we are in chapter three. There are only three chapters in Zephaniah, so we're actually really close to the end of this. We're gonna, I don't want to take much more time. If any opening remarks, I'd rather jump in. There's so much text. I'm actually covering this a little faster than I often do, which I find uh, is a bit frustrating because there's lots of things left on the table that could be talked about. Um, however, this is the pace I, I have sensed that we're supposed to be going, so that I'm trying to do my best to uh, do what I, what I think I'm supposed to. We're going to cover today ch- uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. Uh, is what we're going to read this morning. I've entitled my message, The Justice of the Lord. And in many ways, uh, you're going to hear some things that sound pretty familiar to what we've already been talking about in the book of Zephaniah. You're going to hear about God's wrath. You're going to hear about God's judgment. You're going to hear about the impending doom of some kind. But there's also going to be a marked difference. And I'd like to, uh, to talk today about what God's justice accomplishes There's a very clear picture that's going to emerge here that's going to push us and move us to the end. Last week we had uh, what I called a glimmer of hope. We had the door cracking open, so to speak, of of, uh, uh, the potential that we can escape God's judgment. We can be hidden uh, at a time when God judges uh, the sinfulness of humanity. And we're going to see a bit more of how that is going to unfold today. So read with me from uh, Zephaniah chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 1 and read through verse 13. This is what Zephaniah continued as he prophesied in the, uh, the words that God gave to him. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail. But the unjust knows no shame. Here God switches to first person. I have cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling place would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. Therefore, Wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and, to, and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughters of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proud exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel." 
They shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Father, thank you for the word that's been contained and it's been uh, put together, it's been preserved for us, and it teaches us, and here we are again this morning. We begin from a perspective that says your words are the words we need. The words you've given us, the Bible, is the word that we need, the foundation for us to build our lives upon, for it reveals to us who you are. It reveals to us who we are. It reveals to us what you've done for us. And oh, this morning, God, I think you want to bring that again to the forefront of our minds. I pray that you would do so through me and by the power of your Holy Spirit with clarity so that there would be no mistake when we leave this room what, I, what is meant by that statement of what you've done for us. And I pray as, as, your word is, as we look at your word that it then also leads us to understand what you want from us. May you be praised. May your Holy Spirit be in charge in Jesus' name. Amen. The justice of the Lord. I want to give an overview just to kind of give you a, a, a stand back picture of where, the, where I think the message is going to go for us this morning. What I think these words want to say to us. I'm going to try to do it in a big picture so as we start digging in the details. You're going to hopefully kind of, kind of see where they slot in and it's all going to make sense. I'm going to do that using a Hebrew word that's contained in the text here. It actually shows up four times in the 13 verses we read. You don't need to know the word necessarily. It's the word kehreb. It shows up four times. It shows up in verse 3, in verse 5, in verse 11, and verse 12. The word kehreb means the nearest part or within or in the midst, in the middle of. It shows up four times in this text, and it, I believe, is laying out uh, sort of the, the path of what God wants to tell us is going to happen when the justice of God begins to show up. The path. It shows up in verse 5. As, sorry, in verse 3, when it talks about the officials within Jerusalem, the people within Jerusalem, the sinful people within Jerusalem. So the first point I want to make as I give you the overarching uh, thrust of this message is that there are sinful people in the text here, they're in Jerusalem. But of course, that just represents that there are even sinful people within God's people. And of course, it stands to reason that if they're within God's people, they're sinful people in the world, Right? That happened from the beginning as God planted the Garden of Eden and he put Adam and Eve in there and they chose to disobey from that moment on. There were sinful people in the midst of God's creation. But as you read in verse 5, God is also still in the midst, isn't he? It's so clear. In Jerusalem are these awful things, but God is also still within her. There's that word in verse 5. The Lord within her. God is in the midst, and as we're unfolding this message, we know that when God is there, God's justice is there. That's the big point of what Zephaniah is talking about all the way through. God's justice is there. You know the word judgment comes out of the word justice. God is a just God. But today we're going to see that something is going to happen out of God's justice. Perhaps not what we expect, because so far, when we are talking about God's judgment coming, we're only hearing words like destruction and doom and emptiness, and everything's getting swept up, all of which is true. But in this text, a corner is being turned as the door of hope is opened, and we see that God will and is able to and will protect those who turn to him that something curious happens. When we next see the words within, they're actually used twice. First of all, in verse 11, he says, I'm going to remove 
the proud and haughty or arrogant people from within your midst, but I will leave in your midst a humble and lowly people. And what we see is that somehow as God enacts his judgment upon sinful people and his justice is brought about, the result of that is holy people. This is what I believe the story of the Bible is actually about. Not just Zephaniah. Not just chapters 3 verses 1 to 13. But the Bible is about this. Is that there are sinful people in God's creation, but God is in his midst still. And when God brings about his justice, the result of that is holy people. Let's jump in because we have to see and just kind of track it through. So the first three verses, four verses are going to be this first part, and then the middle part, and then the end part. But let's jump in. Verse 1 says, Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. Again, I already talked about the fact it's referring to Jerusalem. That's what it's referring to. But of course, Jerusalem stands in place. Again, the spotlight has come back and says, we're going to talk about God's people. And in the middle of God's people, there's still some very nasty stuff going on. Is that still true today, church? That in the middle of God's people, those who are called by God's name and who are saying they're following God, there's still some nasty business going on. There's still some mixed allegiance. There's still some who say they give their allegiance, but they really don't. It hasn't changed, has it? Look at the definition given to this city, to these people. If you're going to be called rebellious, if you're going to be called uh, oppressing and defiling, look at these words. She listens to no voice. I'm telling you, if you would read this in the Hebrew, it would be, it would be even more powerful because there's only like three words each time. No listening to the voice. No accepting correction. No trusting the Lord. No drawing near. That's all one word. No drawing near to the, her God. There's actually four words in that phrase. Listen, I don't care what we say. I don't care what we proclaim or, or try to, to, to say is true about us. I don't care how many times we show up at church. I don't care how, how many Bible verses we have on the walls. I don't care what lineage we come from. I don't care how conservatively we dress. I don't care how well-behaved our children are. I don't care what we've managed to amass or succeed or to put out here in the outward picture. If this describes us, then we're in trouble. If we will not heed to God's voice, if we will not accept any correction, if we don't know how to humble ourselves, if we don't trust in the Lord, but we trust in what we can do, and if we do not draw near to the Lord, then we are being in this first description that is clearly in the category of sinful people. I said they're sinful people. Let's, let's just try it out some names, some, some descriptors that are here in these first things. They are arrogant. They are self-centered. They are selfish. Maybe, maybe a parallel word or, or of like kind, but I think there's some distinction there. They're self-centered. They're selfish. They will get what they want and they don't stop at anything about. They're fickle. That means they're bouncing back and forth. They're playing the best side. They're getting whatever they can. They're trying to keep feet in both camps. They're trying to ride the rail. Whatever phrase you want to use, they're fickle. They go back and forth because all they're interested in is getting what they want out of whatever's happening in front of them. They're treacherous. They're profane. They're unholy is what that word means. They're unrighteous. In fact, it says they do violence to the law. And listen, that's just talking about the leaders. That's just talking about the judges. 
That's talking about those who presume to speak for God, the prophets and those who are the priests, those who are supposed to lead them. That's those at the top. That's not counting all the people down here, so to speak. You think it gets any better there? There's plenty of evidence that they're sinful people, right? They're in our midst. But we read verse 5, and we understand that despite all of the stuff that's against God, all of the thumbing of the nose and the, the profane living and the unholy, unrighteous violence against the law, evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning kind of stuff that's going on, God is also still in the midst. And we read these words that are so sure and so clear that ought to go to the very bottom foundational bedrock places of what we believe. God, the Lord is within her and he is righteous. Look at what it says. There's no mistaking. There's no pulling punches. There's no shading. There's no maybe about this. He does no injustice. He does no injustice. He follows up with the rest of that verse to say, every morning, in fact, he shows forth his justice. He continues to behave in a just way among those who are unjust, among those who are all that other list, arrogant and, and self-centered and selfish and, and evil and wicked. He continues to show forth his justice. Each day he does not fail. If I can borrow the words of what Eric said when he was up here leading sharing time, he's working, he's doing things. He's showing himself to be the just God. He's putting forth this, this, this work that demonstrates that he does not make any mistakes. In the Song of Moses from the book of Deuteronomy, he says these words. He says, the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice. All of God's ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, without anything wrong about him. He's just and upright. Again, I tell you, brothers and sisters, these are the kinds of things, this is the kind of moment that have been given to us while we have breath in our lungs, the kind of moment that's been given to us to say, we know how true these words are when we sit in church. We know how much we agree to them and say, yeah, this is true. But I'm asking you, deep down inside, when it stops, when, 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 there's, when there's nothing else going on and you're reaching way, is that what you truly believe about God? That he does not make a mistake. There's nothing that he does that is wrong. He's perfectly just and upright. He's without iniquity. He's faithful. I know what it's like because there's things that happen that we don't like, right? There's things that don't go the way we want them to go. There's all kinds of pressures to think that what I say I believe may not be true. Yet I cannot move away from such strong, clear declarations in the word of God that tell us this is true. The question is, do I believe that actually? Is that really where I'm at? When it really comes down to stuff not going like I want, am I really going to say, the rock, his work is perfect. All his ways are justice. He's a God of faithfulness. He's without iniquity. He's just and upright. These verses go on if you keep reading verse 5, 6, 7, and 8. 
in Zephaniah here, this is in the middle part here, we also see God's patience on display, right? He's not just just and upright. We see his patience on display. Look what he says in verse 7. He says, surely if I give some correction, my paraphrase, surely if I give some correction, if I hand out a little bit of corrective action, surely they will accept it and surely they'll change their ways so that I don't have to destroy their dwelling place. It's the same thing we do as parents all the time, right? Moms and dads, surely if I bring a little bit of correction, then my child will amend his or her ways, right? That's the same thing God is doing. He's saying, I'm patient. I'm not just going to come in the moment you do something wrong and say, that's it, you're done. He's saying, I'm, I'm providing some correction. I'm providing, and read through these pages, friends. Read through Judges and Kings and Chronicles and you'll see God being patient and patient and patient and far more patient than any of us would be. Let's be honest. Surely if I give some correction, they will accept it and they will change their ways. But you know what? They didn't, did they? And they didn't any more than we often don't. Their hearts were hard just like our hearts can be hard. Their necks were stiff just like our necks can be stiff. They refused to yield and God made his just decision in verse eight. He says, because you just continue to be eager to make your deeds all the more corrupt, my decision is to gather the nations, to assemble the kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. And we are left once again with the cold, brutal reality that we deserve all that God is going to pour out because of our sinfulness. That God is absolutely correct in his jealousy for his creation to completely and utterly destroy it because of our sinfulness. Because God doesn't do anything wrong, does he? He doesn't make a mistake. So if that's the outcome, I mean, we can, we can, we can not believe it or not receive it, but it's still true. But here's why I want you to see that the next verse doesn't match everything we've read so far. Everything you might be seeing and feeling. Because look at what it says. God has just made a decision to pour out all of his burning anger. The fire of his jealousy is going to come out and he's going to consume the earth. And the very next words out of Zephaniah's mouth, what does he say? For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. Somehow, out of the ashes of utter defeat comes an incredible victory. Somehow, out of what was so devastating comes something that's so unbelievably the opposite, isn't it? Out of this ugly list of sinful people and their behaviors and their attitudes and what they do, we suddenly see that when God is in their midst and his justice is enacted, that we actually see holy people on the end of that, at the outcome of that, not sinful people. 
look at those verses that come in verse 9, 10, 11, and 12. We could dig into some, so many nuances from these, these verses. But all, what I want to show you is I want to show you the list of some things, some, some descriptors that are used. You saw the other descriptors for you that are on this side. You saw, but now look at the descriptors on this side. Because what comes out of God's justice and anger and wrath and judgment somehow is people of pure speech. People who worship God. People whose allegiance is given to him. People who serve him in unity. That's so clear in this text. They call upon the Lord, name of the Lord. They serve him with one accord. That word is such a clear, such an awesome word picture because it means like of the same shoulder. Like they're leaning the shoulder into the harness. They're, 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 they're yoked together, if you want to use that biblical phrase. They serve in unity. We see that they're humble. We see that they're lowly. We see that they trust God. They've given him their, their allegiance and their trust to him. We see that they, are, they themselves are just and true, and we see that they're at peace. I want to go back to the just and true because there's such a clear contrast, and we ought to make sure we catch it because it's so scriptural. It's so the story of what's in scripture. The sinful people are unjust, right? There's all kinds of injustice. It doesn't stop. It doesn't matter how many times God punishes them. It just seems like they want to get more unjust. And yet when God's justice comes... The result is we see people that are now just and true. And all that is to say that God has made them like himself. Or if you want to use this biblical phrase, God has returned them to how he has created them. Right? Or if you want to use this biblical phrase, God has, has restored the image of himself that he originally made them with. It's back. That list of things... They trust him. They're just and true. Now you begin to see God-like actions out of them. They're humble and lowly. They're of pure speech. But I love the picture of them resting at peace. The very last verse we read. They graze and they lie down and none shall make them afraid. They're at peace. But we have a lot of really important ground to cover yet this morning. Because I just told you that God said, I punished, I corrected, I, 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 I reached out and did something, I enacted my justice, I made, said that's, that's enough, now my wrath is going to come, my judgment is going to come, I scattered, I brought back, I, I did all those things, and it just kept on going. But in the day that Zephaniah is talking about, at that time, in Zephaniah chapter 3 verse 9, at that time, something was different. Something changed. And I want to be very clear and careful again this morning that I'm, we're, we're, going to, we're going to need to again see that there are, there are layers of fulfillment, right? There are times when this is true and then it's going to come true again and it's going to come true again. But we today this morning have to talk about one critically important fulfillment of the words that Zephaniah said because in them we see the reality of how God's just, righteous anger and judgment took sinful people and left holy people in its wake. But we need to track through the scripture to see how this happened. I'm going to turn our attention first, and if you're willing to, if you want to, I have the, all the references on the handout that you have, but if you want to turn in your Bible, I'd love to have you see them in your own word. I'm going to turn, I'm going to start by going to Isaiah chapter 59. In Isaiah chapter 59, God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah this time, and he says some interesting things. You're going to hear some very familiar things at the beginning of this, of what Zephaniah is talking about, what we've already talked about this morning. 
Isaiah 59, starting in verse 14, God says this, justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away for truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Wow. You think those words were written for them back then, right? And they were. But do those words ever fit us today? Truth is lacking, he goes on in verse 15. And he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. In other words, if you're going to try to do good, you, become, uh, you, you make yourself vulnerable to those who, who will attack you for it. Verse 15 goes on to say, the Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Now look what he says. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He, God, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives, and a redeemer will come to Zion. For those, sorry, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. Now some very similar sounding words to what Zephaniah is talking about, but some key indications of what day we're going to have to talk about this morning, the day that came, the fulfillment of God's wrath and justice that brought about holiness out of sinfulness. When he looked around, there was no one to work that justice for him. And what does it say God did? You read the text. What does it say that God did? When he scanned the earth and saw there was no one who's going to bring about justice, there was no one who's going to bring redemption back to humanity, what did God do? What did he do, church? He worked his own redemption, right? Some of you said his name already. He worked his own redemption. If you were to read Zechariah chapter 9, you would read some very familiar, similar sounding words of God's justice and God's judgment being poured out. And in those verses, you would read a very familiar verse. Zechariah 9, verse 9. In fact, if you were a Bible quizzer here this morning, it would be very familiar to you because you're going to read them in the Gospels. Zechariah 9, 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Sounds great, right? How does the rest of the verse finish? You know there's more, right? It's going to tie into exactly our text this morning. How does the rest of the verse finish? Any quizzer know? Your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. In other words, he's not coming in with power. He's not coming in and saying, I'm taking over the world. He's coming in with humility. How can it be? Your king, your salvation, your redemption, the Lord working his own salvation is coming to you, but not with pomp and circumstance, but riding on a lowly donkey. Of course, Jesus fulfilled exactly that, right? He rode into the city of Jerusalem and they hailed him, but three days later, they would kill him. Might have been three days later. Might have been just, I'm not sure. You can check me on that. Several days later, I can say that. They turned on him and they killed him, right? They punished him and they crucified him in the most brutal manner. They put him to public death. But... We must follow the thread until the end. 
Because Isaiah actually also spoke about the death of this humble servant who God was going to send. These are well-known verses. In Isaiah chapter 53, I can't read the whole chapter. I'm not going to anyway. I could, but I'm not going to. In verse 5 and verse 6, I do want to read because here's what God said about this humble servant who came riding on a donkey, about how he looked down and saw there was no one to work justice for him, so he worked it himself. His own arm worked it, and it was through the person of Jesus as, as he came. But look at what he says about him in verse 5 of Isaiah 53. But he, the servant, we know is Jesus, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement, the punishment that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Oh, there was punishment. There was wrath and indignation. The jealousy of God was poured out. But we're beginning to see a different picture emerge, aren't we? Upon him, God has laid the iniquity of us all. Upon him, God has laid the iniquity of us all. When Paul would reflect back on this day, this day of God's great justice, of God's great judgment, when Paul would look back on that day, he would write in Romans chapter 3, verse 21, starting there, he says, but now the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God has been manifested or revealed apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as the propitiation, the substitute by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that, and listen to this, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You see, when God's justice came, it didn't quite, on that day, it didn't quite show up like what we're reading in Zephaniah. It didn't quite show up where all the people were going to die and the land was going to become a wasteland. God was dealing with his adversaries, make no mistake. God was defeating his enemies, make no mistake. God did get victory over all of his enemies, make no mistake. God gathered the host of heaven and he put on display what his justice does, make no mistake. But the result is not anything like what we've been picturing so far. The result is somehow sinful people became holy people. When Paul summed it up in the second letter of the Corinthians, he simply said it this way, for our sake, for your sake, for my sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, can I have you do something this morning? Can I have you reframe something in your head this morning? Can I have you deal with the staggering weight of all the things that we've read in Zephaniah so far about the great anger of God that has poured out upon his enemies because of the sinfulness that is in the world? Can I have you reframe that and see that all of that was poured out on Jesus Christ on that day? Every description you've read so far about how awful God's anger is against sin Jesus Christ took upon himself for you. How can it be? 
How can it be? You see, when God is in our midst and his justice comes, it is an awful thing. But it actually means salvation for us. Because that awful thing was paid by him, was poured out on him, his own flesh, his own son, I should say. I don't know where all we're going to go yet. We have at least one more message here that we're going to get to in a couple weeks here. I don't know where all we're going to go yet. And I want to leave it here this morning, but I want to make this comment yet. There is, of course, another. We're just dealing with one of those fulfillments on the day that Jesus Christ took the punishment and penalty of your sin upon him. There's another day coming when God's great anger will be poured out, and I believe it will fit about every description you've been thinking of so far in Zephaniah. Read the book of Revelation. It is my belief, however, brothers and sisters, that that anger and wrath that will at that day be poured out will not so much be because of the sin that we've committed, but it will be because of what we've done with Jesus. Because Jesus was already offered for you and I. If you will, think about it this way. This is my paraphrase, so I want to be careful. I don't, I'm not God. But if you will, think about it this way. What would it do to you if you would go to great lengths and it would cost you greatly and you would make sure that justice was really worked for someone else's error, someone else's sin? And they said, no thanks, I don't want that gift. but it's paid for. It's already paid for, isn't it? Here's the reality. The one fulfillment of the words of Zephaniah that we read this morning about the justice of the Lord, that day has already happened. That day has already happened and Jesus Christ, God's own son, worked salvation for you and I. And my only question I can ask to you this morning And whether it's the first time, the millionth time, I don't care. But it must still be the same answer for you and I. My only question I can ask is, what have you done with that day? Have you received by faith the truth that Jesus paid for your sins? That God's wrath, his just, his righteous, the well-deserved punishment that you deserved for all of your sinfulness has already been paid for. Jesus bore his, your stripes. By his wounds you were healed. What have you done with that? God, I thank you for the glorious, glorious truth in your word. I, it, we come to places like this, God, and I just about can't. I mean, we're tucked away in some little book in Zeph, like Zephaniah in the Old Testament, and we barely pay attention to that book so often. And I, we come, and I just about can't, I just about can't handle Once again, the glorious truth of what you've done for us through Jesus Christ. 
I'm left again. God, I know me. I know me. And I know those words that were on that sinful list, that sinful people list. I know those words and how they apply to me. The arrogance and the selfishness. And it's not that hard for me, God, to read about you and your perfection and your, your just, your righteousness, your, your sinlessness, your, your beauty. And it's not that hard for me to figure out I deserve. I deserve all your anger toward me. And then I read precious words. Like on the day of your justice, when you pour out your wrath and judgment upon sin, that there's a chance for out of that sinful list to come the holy list. That for me, that my speech can be purified, that I can trust in you and serve you wholeheartedly. I can give you my allegiance. I can be at rest. I can be at peace. I can be unified with others who are in the same way, who have also received what you've done. Oh, how foolish would I be, God, to not say yes, yes, a thousand times yes. Take everything else away but Jesus. I must have him. This morning, God, here we are. We have an opportunity for us this morning to just again say God, thank you so much for Jesus. I give my life to him in the same way I believe that he came and that he died and that he rose again and I want to make him the Lord of my life. I want to make him my boss. It is really true that you love us far more than we can even imagine, that you will do far more than we ask or think or even imagine this great salvation that you've wrought. Help us to receive it and to walk in it, to allow it to change, to allow the blood of Christ to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to purify us, to be a people of pure speech, humble and lowly, truthful and honest, just. Help us to surrender to you that we can receive correction from you, we can be taught by you, by your word, by your Holy Spirit, that we can be transformed, that we can be renewed to the image of our creator. Thank you for these glorious truths in your word and having such wonderful promises, help us to walk in them. We give you praise, we give you glory. I thank you for these brothers and sisters who have committed themselves to you, God. I pray for your blessing. I pray for your outpouring of your grace. I pray for your Holy Spirit to fill, indwell, empower, move us, shape us, change us, use us for your honor and glory. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.